that. And, uh, and uh, I, I enjoy them singing. I, I may have go up there and sing it at Master Club, all right? And I only, you know, I think it's good for young men to see that. And I, I do. I think it's important that, uh, you know, it's good for us for to lead that way, men, in singing. And uh, even if it's a joyful noise, that was more than a joyful noise. Although he did send a Mich- put a Michigan um, coin on this pulpit a minute ago, and we may need to anoint it with oil and rededicate it. All right, and uh, and uh, but I but I enjoyed that uh, Esther chapter four, Esther chapter four, and stand with me one more time if you would, Esther chapter four. And uh, verse 13, we'll read just a couple verses here and, and uh, then we'll look at some background for the book of Esther and then a message from it. <clears throat> Esther chapter 4 and verse 13 says, Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Then Esther bade them to return to Mordecai this answer. Go, gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast ye for me. And neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise. And so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. Lord, we love you and we thank you so much for the scripture tonight. And uh, Lord, I wish we could spend a lot more time in this book. And I pray that, uh, Lord, with the time that we have, that it would be used wisely. I pray that you'd give me the wisdom and the words to say. I pray that you'd touch our hearts and feed us from the scripture tonight. Lord, we love you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This is an unusual book. It's one of two books in the Old Testament named after or named for a woman. Ruth is the story of a Gentile who married a Jew. And Esther is the story of a Jewess who married a Gentile. The events recorded in this book probably did occur somewhere between the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And these three historical books, we looked at Esther and, or Ezra and Nehemiah last week, and Esther happened during that time frame of uh, after, the, after the captivity, the 70 years of captivity there in Babylon, and as the people of Israel would return. And Ezra and Nehemiah, this, more than likely, this book of Esther was written about 50 years, or this account happened about 50 years after Cyrus had gave, given the decree that they could return to, uh, to uh, Jerusalem or return back to Israel and the temple could be real, rebuilt. So about 50 years. Uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are books that tell the story of the Jews that returned. And the book of Esther is the story of an event that took place with the Jews that remained. And as you know, about 50,000 of the Jews would return over the course of time with Ezra and Nehemiah. And, but many of them, many would remain in Babylon and, and in, the, in, that, uh, in that nation, in that world. And uh, so this is an account that happened for those that remain. The writer of this book is, uh, the book is, although it's titled after Esther, it's doubtful that she wrote it. Uh, there's no claim in the text that she did. But others, uh, others thought it was written possibly by Mordecai and even others, Ezra. Uh, it would seem, just from some logical things and some things we see from the book, that it was probably Mordecai that God would use uh, to write this book of Esther. Who is Ahasuerus, if I pronounce his name right? He's known in history outside the Bible as Xerxes, which is, Greek, which is the Greek form of his Persian name. Xerxes reigned over the Persian Empire 
from about 485 to 465 B.C. Uh, many doubted, uh, didn't know for sure who Ahasuerus was until it was found later by a man named George Frederick Grotefend, if I'm pronouncing his, right, his name right. He was a student at the a university there in German, Germany, and he, uh, he translated some of the symbols and some things from some ancient uh, Persian uh, ruins, and it, that gave us the, the first glimpse of who he was. Uh, it was a translation. We come to his, his, Ahasuerus is the English translation of his name that came out of the Hebrew and before that out of the Greek into Xerxes and back into uh, his name uh, that we see in the Greek Xerxes. But uh, we see it to be this king. Who he was, uh, let me read a little bit. J. Sidlow Baxter in his book said this about him. This king is who ordered a bridge to be built about his nature over Hellspont and who on learning that the bridge had been destroyed by a tempest just after its completion was so blindly enraged that he commanded 300 strokes of the scourge to be inflicted on the sea. And I'm sure the sea took notice, all right? And a, and a pair of fetters to be thrown into the Hellspont and then had the unhappy builders of the bridge beheaded. Uh, this is the king who, on being offered a sum equivalent to, uh, to about $7 million by Pythias, or our day, $7 million, by Pythias the Lydon, toward the expense of a military expedition. He was so enraptured at such loyalty that he returned the money, accompanied by a handsome present. And then, being on requested by the same Pythias shortly afterwards to spare his, one of his sons, his eldest, from the expedition, as the sole support for his declining years, furiously ordered the sun to be cut into two pieces and the army to march between them. This is the king who dishonored the remains of the Spartan Leonidas. This is the king who drowned uh, the humiliation of his inglorious defeat there in, in a plunge, uh, or I'll pause there, of sensuality and wickedness. But he was just a man of extremes. And you kind of see that unfold in this book of Esther. Uh, in one portion of scripture, he's carelessly saying, Haman, go kill all the Jews, thousands, tens of thousands of people. And in the next moment, uh, at the request of, of Esther, he's going back on it. And you, if you look at him from a historical standpoint, that's who he was. And he was a man of those extremes that went back and forth uh, in what he did. Uh, and uh, just a wicked, a wicked man that we see here in this passage of scripture. This book is a little bit of a strange story. Uh, the book of Esther describes the events that took place here in Sushan, the principal Persian's capital. The characters are either Persian or Jews of the dispersion. No mention is made of Palestine, Jerusalem, the temple, the law of Moses, or general Hebrew history. The Persian king is mentioned 192 times in 167 verses. His kingdom is referred to 26 times and his name is given 29 times. But God is not mentioned at, no, at all. Not, of all. not of the titles for God and his in general use among the Jews were to be found, neither Elohim, nor Jehovah, nor Shaddai, nor Adonai. God's name was not found at all in this book or the law or any of those things. We don't even get a glimpse of them. There's two reasons for this, I think, and uh, one of them we're going to come to here in a minute. It's the providence of God, but the other was the disobedience of God's people. Jeremiah 29.10 says, For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years are accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good work toward you in causing you to return to this place. 
Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12 says, And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And it shall come to pass when the 70 years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans and will make it a perpetual desolation. Uh, the 50 years prior to this story happening, King Cyrus had given that declaration that they could return to Jerusalem. But out of the thousands and possibly millions that were in captivity, only 50,000 of them returned. It was a long journey back, some 700 miles. It was several months journey back. And when they returned, they would have nothing but hard work and building in front of them. And many of them had developed positions of Mordecai, for instance, had a place in Shushan, the palace, means he lived inside of it. Uh, he was a man of position. He refused to bow when Haman asked him, and uh, he was allowed not to bow. It, it demonstrated his position that he held. And many of the people of Israel had gained place and prominence, and many of them did not want to go back to the hardship of rebuilding and going back into Jerusalem. And they elected instead to stay in Babylon and to stay in the world and, and to stay with the world. And, and I, I think what happened is God said, I'm not attaching my name to that. God's providence seen. God didn't forsake his people. I love the principle in, in scripture. I will never leave thee nor what? Forsake thee. And God didn't forsake his people, but he, we see him working behind the scenes, but he would not attach his name to any of it. He wouldn't attach his name to it. And uh, it was a people, I think you get a little glimpse of a people that wanted salvation without sanctification. They wanted the blessings of redemption, but not the changing of their life. And God said, I'm not attaching my name to that. They wanted to be among the redeemed, but they didn't want to be among the returned. And uh, we see in Ezra and Nehemiah what God would do in the midst of a nation of people that went back. And we see here God's protection, if you will, over his people. And ultimately, God, we see the tribulation and things that God will do among the Jews and uh, of some of those that are scattered about the world and how even now he brings them back to Israel. But God said, I won't attach my name to that. I won't attach my name to that. And we see that as God just refuses. As a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy 31, 18, it says this, And I will surely hide my face in that day for all the evils which they shall have wrought in that they are turned unto other gods. I will surely hide my face in the day. And I think we see the hidden face of God here. We see the providence of God, but we also see the hidden face of God. I don't want my name attached to that. I've called you to a land. I've given you a place. I've made you my people. And yet you decided to stay in rather than come out. And we see them remaining there there, the key verses of this passage of this book, Esther four fourteen says, "For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come into the kingdom for such a time as this? The providence of God behind the scenes. Uh, he would Mordecai would challenge Esther. Who knows that this could be the time that God's placed you? But if you don't rise up, God will still rise up because these are His people." These are his people. And uh, we see that the hand of God and the providence of God. The purpose of this book, Esther teaches the providence. Uh, it comes from the same stem as to provide, and it means simply that God will provide. Although the Lord's name is never seen in the book of Esther, an acrostic in the Hebrew Bible shows his presence behind the scene. 
The name Jehovah is secretly hidden four times in an acrostic form, and the name I am once. Uh, you wouldn't see it in your English Bible, but in the Hebrew, they, they see it a little bit in these verses. And in 120, 5.4, 5.13, and 6.7, uh, if you were to have it in the Hebrew Bible, you would see a little bit of an acrostic that brings out the name Jehovah. And in chapter 7 and verse 5, you would see an acrostic that brings out the Lord's name, I am. What you see is the Lord behind the scenes, but not stamping his name to it. And we see that. You know, I'm thankful for a God in his mercy who never forsakes us. I think of the Christian who's saved, yet so as by what? Fire. Uh, In other words, friend, once saved, always saved. Eternal security. We believe with all our heart, don't we? Uh, We we become a child of God. And to as many as received him, to them gave you the power to become the sons of God. We receive the gift of his Holy Spirit, sealed into the day of redemption. He says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Uh, we see the promise in John chapter 10 where he said, and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My father which gave them me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. God holds us in the palm of his hands and it's not us holding it on to God. It's God holding on to us. And God allows you. you. You can walk, you can, if you will, live the life the way you want to, but don't expect God to attach his name to it. And here was a people that would refuse to return as God desired them to return, and, and God would providentially protect them, but refuse to give his stamp to it. And we see that in this, this book, the, the providential hand of God behind the scenes but his refusal, I think uh, the, his refusal to say that that is the way I want my people to live and behave. Theologically, providence is the direction that God gives to everything uh, in what his working. And practically, providence is the hand of God and the glove of history. And that glove will never move until he moves it. I, I like in Acts chapter 4, we get a glimpse of this. The church would go to pray and they would quote uh, at, right after Peter and John had gone up to the synagogue or up the temple and the man was there, alms, alms. And Peter would say, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give thee, rise up and walk. And he would, he would rise up and walk. And in the name of the Lord, in the name of Jesus, he would rise up and walk. And of course, the council and the Pharisees were all angry. They thought they had dealt once and for all with this Jesus. And now someone was preaching in his name. They would be brought before the council and commanded to go out and not to preach his name anymore. And of course, they decided, rightly so, it's better to obey God than man. And uh, they would continue. But when they returned to the church, the church began to pray. They didn't pray for the church, church, the circumstances to change. They prayed for boldness. If you read that in Acts chapter 4, an amazing prayer. God give us the boldness in the face of this rather than God change all the circumstance. And, uh, but in the course of it, they'd say, why do the heathen rage? And they would mention all these folks that had tried to stop. But even in their stopping of God, I'm paraphrasing, God was still working. Providence is this, that God is always at work. God has a purpose and he has a plan. Yeah, at work in our life. We see that in this book. Here's a people that, if you will, they should have returned, but they chose to stay. And, and in their choosing to stay, certainly God was displeased with that, but he didn't abandon his people. I am thankful that God doesn't abandon his people. Look, from a human standpoint, probably every one of us could look in the rearview mirror and say, if I were God, that's a moment I would have left me. Uh, but God doesn't do that, and I'm thankful. Though he may not have agreed with what I did, he didn't leave me there. And I'm thankful for that. We see that in this passage of Scripture. I would rather have been among the crowd that went with Ezra and Nehemiah back into the promised land. But many stayed. Isn't that so much like today? It is better to give yourself wholly to the Lord 
but many will not give themselves wholly to the Lord. And, uh, and God, to be frank, some are saved, yet so has but fire. God still works among those who trust him. And uh, friend, not the way I'd like it to be done. As a matter of fact, there's not a single miracle recorded in this book. God didn't use any miracles to protect his people. He used amazing circumstances, but no miracles in this book. God doesn't need, maybe that's the miracle of the book, that God doesn't need miracles to do miraculous work. But he worked anyway in this passage of Scripture. There's some types in this book of Esther, some, some glimpses that we see from the characters of this book that teach us some truths in today. The king of Hazarus, he represents the unsaved, unregenerated man, ignorant of God and motivated and totally controlled by worldly principles. Boy, if you read those first three chapters, you see a worldly man, don't you? You see a worldly man moved about with worldly desires, the lust of the flesh, the desire to have, the positions of life. And you see that in him, completely motivated by his position, by the lust of the flesh, and his calling a vast tide before the crowd. The indulgences in that, which was historically, we know this, a, a trait of the Persian Empire, those incredible indulgences and all those things that were there, but com- completely controlled by the flesh and the world. I think of Ephesians chapter 2, who we were, dead in trespass of sin, and we were completely under that influence of the world. And you see that in this king, a man completely controlled by the flesh and the world. You see, Mordecai, the Jew, provide, he's a glimpse or a type of, of Christ. Now, types are never exactly, uh, they're, ne- they're never doctrinal, right? They give us pictures, but they're not perfect. And Mordecai, the Jew, provides salvation and therefore represents the Savior. He's a, he's a man who we would see in Esther 2, 5 through 7. It says this, Now in Shushan the palace there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimea, the son of Kish, a Benjamite who had been carried away from Jerusalem with captivity which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took her or took for his own daughter. We see him intervene in the life of Esther. In a human, from a human standpoint, maybe be that saving influence that he would take her when her mother and father were, were dead. And I've often, as you know, it said of Mordecai that he was taken out of captivity. And uh, he had been there in, in, in cap, or he had been in Jerusalem and taken out in captivity. And Esther's parents died somewhere, both of them at the same time. I wonder, I've often wondered when I read that, if she died when they marched through and took Jerusalem and took the cities and, and killed those that were there. But he would intervene. And it's a type of the Lord's intervention and, and salvation. Mordecai would intervene in the king's life. In Esther 2, 21 through 23, in those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Bigtha, uh, there's a big fan, there's a name for someone to choose for the little one. All right, next, next uh, Right to Life Sunday, we'll have a dedication there, all right. And Teresh, of those which kept the door, were wroth and sought to lay hand on King Ahasuerus. And the king was known to Mordecai, who told it unto Esther the queen, and Esther certified the king thereof it in Mordecai's name. And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore they were both hanged on a tree, and it was written in the books of the Chronicles before the king. The Lord would use Mordecai to intervene in Esther's life, to enter, intervene in the life of the king of Hazarus, and again, to challenge Esther to go with the message of the king that would save the people. And we see in Mordecai a little picture, if you will, of, of a savior. Uh, there's a type to be learned from here in this book. We see a type in Haman. There's no question about who he is. 
the Agite is what it would, uh, would tell, the Bible would call him in the scripture. And uh, a man directly linked to the Amalek and to Esau, he represents the enemy. You get a picture of him in his name. H- Esther would name him in chapter 7, verse 6, Haman the wicked. Uh, the wicked one. I think of Satan when we think of him. We see it in his power that he quickly rose. As a matter of fact, one writer would speak of how his life lined up quick, uh, very closely in a type to the Antichrist of the Old Testament of, of the book of Revelation. His name and his power that he would have, that he would rise quickly. Uh, you see him come on the scene very quickly. His pride in chapter 11 uh, and chapter 5 verses 11 and 13, we see his pride on display. And matter of fact, it's why he took offense at Mordecai was because of his pride. There's a cautionary tale about pride, pride friend. And uh, his hate that he had. As a matter of fact, if you go to chapter 3 and verse 10 here, look at chapter 3 and uh, verse 10 here, it, it would say this. It says, And the king took his ring from his hand and gave it unto Haman, the son of Amedia, the Agite, the Jew's enemy. He was known as a Jew, an enemy of the Jew, probably from the line of the Amalekites going back that had always been an enemy of the Jews. And you see his name used that way in chapter 8, verse 1, chapter 9, verse 10, and verse 24. We see a type of Satan, the enemy of God's people, desiring nothing but to see them destroyed. You see it in his plot. What a wicked plot he had to completely wipe out the people. Esther was a picture of the church, if you will, the one who knows and loves Mordecai, the picture of the Savior, and who bears witness to the truth to her husband, the king. Uh, she was a representation or a type of the church. Not that in, in obviously the king being a, no type is perfect. Not and then that thick packed fact that the king would be a type of Christ for, or the Lord, for he certainly is not. But in what God would do in her life through this passage of scripture, we get a little glimpse of that. Her ancestry. If you go back uh, there into chapter, uh, chapter 5 uh, or chapter 2, I believe, and verse 21, it would say, I'm going to go back here in, in chapter 2. I'm sorry, and verse uh, 7, it says, And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, who Mordecai, which is her father and mother, were dead. She had a Jewish ancestry. She had a Jewish ancestry, but both of her parents were killed. And it's a picture of the church. Uh, the church came out of that, didn't it? Uh, we, ha- we had our origins among the Jews, if you will. God would establish his church, but we come out from, from the, the Jews. You picture it as she was a bride. And, of course, the, church would, the Lord refer to the church as the bride of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5, 27, it says that he might present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that should be holy and without blemish. A picture of the bride. And uh, obviously, as someone who overcome, I think of the verses in Matthew chapter 16, where he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. And here in this book, we see that the gates of hell, if you would, could not prevail. Whatever Haman threw, he could not prevail against what, what God was doing. And finally, we see another type, the Persian Jew. And the Persian Jews, those who decided to remain, were a type of the worldly among the Lord's people. The proclamation to return to Israel had been given and they were comfortable in Babylon and decided to remain. They were figures of those who profess faith in Christ, but whose love the world and the flesh too well to make a renunciation for Christ's sake and fully follow him. They wanted to be numbered with the redeemed of the Lord, but they also wanted to enjoy the pleasures of the world. They wanted to stay where they were at. They wanted to be among the redeemed, but they wanted to enjoy the pleasures of the world. No type is perfect, but there's some incredible lessons to be learned from this book. 
And, uh, and we see it in these, these types that unfold throughout it. Here's the, the outline of the book, and I'm going to let you look at that later and come to the message. Message the, the providence of God. Look at verse 4 again, or verse 14 again in verse 4, and this is where we'll be for the remainder of the night. It says, For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed, and who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this, the providence of God. Providence teaches us several things, and the first thing, providence teaches us of God's timing. I think of the verse in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 2, to everything there is a season, a time to every purpose under heaven. Time to be born, a time to die, time to plant, and a time to pluck up that which is planted. God is not random in his timing. He has a purpose and a plan. In this passage of scripture, we see that God had placed this lady in Esther, this man in Mordecai, at this time and in this place to do a work among a people, even a people that should have returned and yet did not. God chose someone. We see the timing of God. And God is not... God is not random in his timing. And I think of that, I think of missions conference coming up. And, you know, God placed us in this time, didn't he? Uh, this time, you know, I, I've heard folks and there is a tendency sometime in life to look into the past and say, if only we had this person from the past and this person from the past and this person in the past. Do you know who disagrees with that? God does. God overrides, doesn't he? The timing of God. I have to say, things would be different if so-and-so were still around, and yet God said, not so. <laughs> I'm the one who has the right timing. I'm the one who has the right timing. We see that in this passage of Scripture. Some might have said, oh, if Joshua were here, oh, if Moses were here, oh, if David were here, oh, if Solomon were here, and no, God said, no, I have Esther here. I have Mordecai here. And we see the timing of God. And uh, God has a timing he has a plan, and we see it in this passage of Scripture. And providence reminds us of the timing of God. Providence teaches us of God's placing. Esther had been placed by God in the palace with a purpose. It was not random. Ephesians 4.16, For whom the whole body, fitly joined together, and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh the increase of the body into the edifying of itself in love. God places us where He wants. Not only does He have good timing, but He has good placing. He puts us right where we want, where we should be. I think of Paul. I preached this on Sunday night. And I think of Paul in, in uh, Timothy when he said he was thankful that God had enabled him, putting him into the ministry. I'm paraphrasing, all right? But God had put him into the ministry. And I, and I think of as Paul would say that in all the places that he had been, he was thankful. He'd been a night and a day in the deep. He'd been shipwrecked. He'd been beaten. He'd been left for dead. I mean, we go on and on and on about the things that he went through. And a matter of fact, in Corinthians, he did go on and on about the things that he went through. But he was thankful that God enabled him, put him into the ministry. Whether that was at Mars Hill, whether it was in Thessalonica or Philippi in a jail, or whether it was on to Athens and Corinth or, or Thessalonica, or whether it was a prison cell in Rome, Paul was thankful for his place in ministry. And I think of God's providence in placing us where he has us. We should be thankful for what God does in our life. And too many times we're looking to the other side when we should be thankful that God has given us a place of ministry and God was not accidental in it. God puts you where you are for the time that you're in. Providence teaches us that. It teaches us of the timing of God. It teaches us of the, the place of God. It, providence teaches us of God's purpose. Uh, Paul and Mordecai would emphasize it for such a time as this. Who, maybe it is that God has placed you here, and we know that to be true. God has a purpose for us. I think of Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. 
a purpose to work in us. You know, God has a purpose to work in all of us. As a matter of fact, he said he will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. There's coming a day when you and I are going to see him and we're going to be as he is. Amen. All this whole sin nature is going to be dropped off and we're going to take on his character. But in the meantime, he's doing a work in our life and God has a desire to work in us. And uh, the providence of God teaches us of this, that God's timing is right, God's place is right, and God's purpose is right. Friend, God is doing a work in you, and the best thing you can do is let God work in you. <laughs> There's a work in us. Through the circumstances of life, through the trusting of God, through prayer, through the word, God does a work in us. And, uh, and the best thing we can do is surrender, that awful word. Surrender, submit, the one none of us like, right? And yet when you do it, what God does in your life, he works in us. But he not only works in us, he works, if you will, through us. First Peter 2.9 says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priest, and a holy nation, a peculiar people. Why did he make us all those things? Why did he make us a chosen generation? Why did he make us a royal priesthood? Why did he make us a holy nation? Why did he make a peculiar people? That ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 3.15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. What is it, God? Why does God make us this way that we could show forth the praises of him who has called him, that we might be ready to give an answer of the one that has done so much in him, that we might represent Christ and show him forth and share the gospel. That is what God wants to do. He wants to do work in me and he wants to do a work through me. And that is everybody. I can tell you this, the purpose of God in every saved soul is that God wants to do a work in you and God wants to do a work through you. I think of this week in missions conference, talk about a perfect time. God wants to do a work in me. And matter of fact, if God will do a work through me, he must first do a work in me, doesn't he? From salvation. God's got to save your soul if he's going to use you because up until then you're at enmity with God. Do a work in you. And if God will use you in your Christian life, you're going to have to let God do a work in you so that he can use you and do a work through you. I tell you, as we, as we walk into a missions conference, our prayer ought to be, Lord, do a work in me, and Lord, do a work through me this week. Use me. Show me what I can do. Send me what I can give. Show me where I, where I should send. Whatever it is you have for me. And in this passage of Scripture, we see God had a purpose. His timing was perfect. His place was perfect. His, perfect. His purpose was perfect. He had a purpose. And providence teaches us that. And you should be thankful for where God has you, for the time he has you to be there, because God has a desire to do something in you and through you. Providence teaches us of God's protection. Isaiah 54, 17, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and the righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. I think of the scripture, what, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. What is it? I know this, that as long as I am doing God's will, God's way, that God provides. That is the providence of God. When I'm doing God's will, God's way, I have God working in my life. When I tried to go against the flow, and in this passage of scripture, we see the providence of God doing a work in this lady that he would use to rise up to, to spare a people that were in rebellion to God. <laughs> But we see that the providence of God that teaches us of the protection of God. And God had a plan for his people, even in the rebellion. And one day, God's going to fully bring that to bear on the Jewish nation. But God's still working in our life. The protection of God. And, and I know this, that God has a purpose and his timing is perfect. 
His place is perfect. His purpose is perfect. And his protection, I have no need to fear what lies ahead because even when the struggles come in my life, the one who loves me lets it. And all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. Am I right? The providence of God is that even the things that are a struggle that I think harm me in my life, God is using to shape me and conform me into the image of his dear son. The protection of God. Providence teaches us that. Providence teaches us of this one. It's not a P, but providence teaches us of our choice. Of our choice. The people had a choice on whether or not to go back to Palestine. Mordecai had a choice to save the king or not. Esther had a choice of whether or not to go before the king. We have a choice in our own life. Think of Hebrews eleven twenty four through 26, another man that had a choice, Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he'd respect unto the recompense of his reward. Moses had a choice. God would have delivered his people without Moses. You know, God had already promised Abraham that he would. 400 years in captivity, and then I'm bringing him out. Moses had a choice. I think of these people here in Babylon. They chose not to choose as Moses chose. Moses said, I don't want to endure the pleasures of sin for a season, the things of Egypt and its world. I'd rather have the affliction with God's people heading out into the promised land than I would be stay back here in the plenty of Egypt. And he made the right choice and followed the Lord into the promised land. This crowd, some of the ones that were in this very story, made the decision to stay and endure and enjoy the things of Babylon rather than get up and head out and head back to Jerusalem, which was their place to be. They chose to stay. God gives every man a choice. The providence of God says God's going to do a work, but do you want to be a part? God's done do a work. Do you want to be a part? Uh, God's return is coming. Do you want to be a part of his purpose till he comes? We just sang the song, we'll work till Jesus comes. Amen. Well, that's a choice, isn't it? Some will, some won't. <laughs> Some will work till Jesus comes, some won't. <laughs> some will let God work in their life till Jesus comes, some won't. Some will let God work through them, some won't. There's a choice. The providence of God is this, that God is a calendar and he has a date set in which that trumpet's going to sound and you and I are caught up out of here, the seven years of tribulation, then he's returning and we're, we're coming back with him. That hand of God is going to work. No man knows the date. We know the seasons. We may not know the exact date and time, but we know the seasons. We know it's going to happen and the choice for me is simple. What is my choice until he comes? What is my choice? Some will be saved, yet so as by fire. Others will see the rewards there that they may lay them at the feet of the one who gave all for them and live for him. We see this in this, this place. Esther thankfully made the right choice and became an overcomer, much like the church is an overcomer. The choice, the providence of God. I am thankful for the providential hand of God. In the providence of hand of God, I see that God's timing is always right. God's place is always right. God's purpose. He's going to do, he wants to do something in me and he wants to do something through me. We see it in this passage of scripture and we see that God's protection in it all. Uh, you, you watch it unfold in spite of the wicked one's plan, God watched over. And I'm thankful this church, in spite of the wicked one's plan in this world, he loses. He loses. The question is this. It's my choice in God's providential plan.
where do I want to be? For these folks, they, many of them made the wrong choice. They decided to stay in, in Babylon. I'm thankful that for the one that was left behind, Esther, Mordecai. Mordecai, probably age in return. He, if he had been taken out of captivity, maybe at least 70 years, probably, and then 50 years after the creed, the, the man was, forgive me, folks, he was a senior citizen, all right? But God used him. God would use the senior citizen in Mordecai. And who did he, what did he do? He encouraged the young one in Esther to take a stand. Now, there's a lesson to be learned. He refused to sit by, and so did Esther refuse to sit by. And God used them because God's providence is always at work. But the choice is always ours. And the reason for it is one little word, L-O-V-E, the love of God. God in his love never forces his will upon us. He provides us, at least in this life, he provides us with choice. He provides us with choice. And you can look at the circumstances of your life and you can say this, God's timing is right. I do not always agree with it. <laughs> but then I'm a fallen man, <laughs> saved by the grace of God. His timing is always right. His place is always right. His purpose is always right. He's always trying to do something in me and he's always trying to do something with me. And his protection is always good. He won't allow something in my life that he's not in control of. And it leaves me with this choice. Do I want into the God's plan or do I want out of God's plan? And in is always better than out of God's plan. Trust the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, I love you and I thank you so much for the providential hand of God that we see unfold in this book. Though your name is never mentioned on its pages, Lord, you're certainly in the back of it all at work and among your people, protecting them in spite of their decision to stay and not return, in spite of the fact that you gave them back the land, they decided to stay and I think of the revival that would unfold in Ezra and Nehemiah among those, that remnant that would return, and yet this crowd would miss it. They would miss that revival. Lord, you would refuse to attach your name to it, but the providential protective hand of God among these people and the people that you would use to do that, Esther and Mordecai. And Lord, I pray that we would trust in your timing. We would trust in your place. We would trust in your purpose and your protection, and we would make the choices in the areas of life to serve you, to let you work in us and to let you work through us. That's about a nice close. How many say, Preacher, I know that I'm saved and I'm on my way to heaven. That's a settled thing for me. And say, Preacher, I know that. That's your testimony. And say, Preacher, I know I'm saved. Would you raise your hand just as a testimony between you and I and the Lord? And thank you. May put your hand down. Is there anybody here this evening say, Preacher, I'm unsure about my salvation. And you talked about the church. And I don't know that I would say that I'm saved. But Preacher, I, I, would you pray for me? Is there anybody like that here tonight? Say, Preacher, would you pray for me? Let me ask you this then, Christian. How many say, Preacher, the Lord has spoken to my heart? Maybe it's just a reminder of God's timing, God's place, God's purpose and His protection. That God is still at work, even sometimes when we don't see it outright, His name attached. You say, God has reminded me that He's of His providential hand. Maybe it's a choice to be made for the Lord that God has called you to. And you say, Preacher, the Lord has spoken to my heart this evening. Would you raise your hand as a testimony? And would you stand with me as that pianist begins to play, as the pianist plays, as the invitation is given. And Friend, there's a time of prayer, and I, if I had the time, I'd turn to the page of Scripture, whereas they were confronted with these obstacles, they fasted. And I'm sure as a part of that fasting, they prayed, and they went to their God. But as God has spoken to your heart, do business with the Lord tonight.